Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Here I Am, we explore all the places where we find this phrase, Here I Am, from God in the scriptures. We look at Old Testament and New Testament versions of this to describe when God is present in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 58, verses 4 through 12. It'll be up on the monitor, so if you want to read along, feel free to read with us. Just so you know, the monitors are kind of in their infancy stages. We're still working some stuff out, and so they might blip out on us if they do. Oh, well, but while they're here, enjoy them. So Isaiah, just so you know, uh, if you ever take some time to read Isaiah, it's a... it's a lot of gobbledygook, like when you try to get into it, it's really hard to understand what he's saying a lot of times. And so as I read through this, I just want you to try to pick out some of the stuff that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, because it's not just clear, it's not a narrative, it's him talking about particular things in particular places, and so we'll get into that later, but read along with me. Look, you fast only to quarrel, and to fight, and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, The pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the dark and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to live in. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm sure many of you are aware that we are doing a sermon series entitled what? All right, very good. We got one thing, right, out of it? It's good stuff, good stuff. So this week we are going to invert the normal pattern. So Normally what we've been talking about is how God calls out to a person, and when that person hears their name, they say in response, here I am. But this time we're going to talk about the inversion of that pattern. What happens when you call out to God? How do you know in difficult and trying circumstances when God has said to you, here I am? Now this is actually a really difficult and challenging question when you start to think about it because let's be honest it's not like in the Bible right in the Bible God speaks to people with words right they have actual conversations with one another I would assume and I'm going out on a limb here that you all probably don't have conversations with God like that in the Bible am I correct about that okay 
You might talk one way, but I doubt God is talking back. If he is, let me know. I'd like to hear what he has to say. So, this is a problem because we don't hear God speaking to us. So, when we cry out to God, I think what most of us are looking for, rather than some kind of verbal response, is really a tangible change to our situations. And I think for many people who are Christian, they believe that when they cry out to God, God does something to change their situation. Now, it could be as simple as a feeling of calm in a moment of panic. It could be some kind words spoken to give us hope in hopeless circumstances. It could be resolution to a conflict that's been causing us great anxiety. There's all kinds of ways that people interpret God as saying to them, here I am. But then there are some people who don't hear God's voice at all. They cry out to God over and over again in their situation. It never changes. They don't feel that God is present with them. They don't feel that God is compassionate, showing them love. They don't feel calm in moments of panic. They don't feel people are offering them kind words to give them hope in hopeless circumstances. They don't see resolutions to conflict that have been causing them anxiety. And this discrepancy between those who hear God's voice and those who don't, it leads us to one of two conclusions about God. Either, one, God picks and chooses the people who God speaks to, meaning God speaks to some and not to others. Or, hearing God's voice is really a matter of perspective and interpretation. So, we're going to void out number one, and let's go with number two. Perspective and interpretation. So what's going on? Let's say you believe that God is speaking to you, that somebody says something kind to you, and that gives you hope, right? Well, in those circumstances, you can interpret that as God heard your pleas for help, and God is speaking through that person. Likewise, you could sit there and have somebody say something kind to you, and you could interpret that as God having nothing to do with it. The person's just being kind because they want to be kind to you. And so you see, the problem with the traditional way of thinking about hearing God's voice in the world is that it's very subjective. If you're religious, and are anybody, is anybody in here religious? I don't know if you are. <laughs> but if you're religious, what religious people tend to say is that God is speaking to us all the time. It's just a matter of you having the perspective and understand it. And most Christians will say that it's only looking back on your life, looking back in hindsight, that you can really see how God was at work in your life. But people who are non-religious will often look at the people who are religious and say, well, you know, you might just be reinterpreting events in your life and making them more important than they actually are. Just because you prayed and somebody said something kind to you, that doesn't mean God is speaking to you through that person. And so we're kind of left in this really difficult position, right? Because everybody's right and everybody's wrong, since hearing God's voice is really a matter of perspective. So how are we going to deal with all of this? Well, thankfully, today in this scripture that we read, there is outlined for us a very direct path to God's voice. So here's what I want to do. I want to, step one, outline what is that path. Then step two, I want to tell you a story that I think will help you understand how our experiences can influence and distort the clarity of God's voice in our lives. And then step three, 
I want to talk about how we can block out the noise in our life so that we can hear God's voice more clearly. So are we ready to go? Are we all on the same page with this? Ready to go forward? Okay, step one, path to God's voice. So in the scripture we read today, we read from Isaiah. Now Isaiah, he tends to speak in two different voices. One voice is just Isaiah saying what Isaiah says. And the other voice is God speaking through Isaiah. And so he's speaking, God, Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. And in this particular instance, we see that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. So what happens is in this particular situation, the Israelites, they're trying to find these various ways that they can find God's voice in their lives. And one of the ways that they do this is by fasting. So by not eating, right, they believe that they're going to hear God's voice more clearly. And so God, through Isaiah, criticizes this method, saying the fast that I choose is to loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to give them clothing. And God says that when you follow all these directives, when you do these things, then when you call out to God, God will answer. When you cry out to God, that is when you will hear God say, here I am. So in essence, what Isaiah is saying, you follow me on this? That when you serve the least, the lost, and the oppressed, that is the most direct path to God's voice. That when you serve the forgotten of this world, that is when you are going to hear God's voice most clearly. And this makes a lot of sense if you step back to think about it. Because I've told you all before that the only thing I believe we can be sure of when it comes to God's will is redemption. Now, what does that word redemption mean? Redemption means when you take something bad, right? God takes something bad and transforms it or uses it for good. And I believe that that's what God is doing in this world all the time, trying to do. God is trying to loose the bonds of oppression. God wants us to be engaged in acts of redemption by feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, bringing the homeless into our house. That is what God wants us to do. And when you're doing that, you're the most in sync with God that you're going to be. And that's when you're going to hear God's voice most clearly because God's voice is found in redemption. You follow me on this. Okay, so step one, done. We can move on to step two. So if we know the path to God's voice, where does that take us from here? Well, here's the issue. That even when you're engaged in acts of redemption, our environments can actually distort and prevent us from hearing God's voice clearly. And perhaps one of the best examples of this is in police work. I once heard a really fascinating interview with a man named Ed Flynn. Ed Flynn is the chief of police for the Milwaukee Police Department. And he talked about how every single police officer who goes into training, the recruits who go to the police academy, almost every single one of them across the board, they go into police work because they want to help people. They want to make the world a better place. In essence, what they want to do is they want to bring redemption to their community, right? Okay, but he says here's the issue, that over time, even the most idealistic officers become jaded because of what they have to experience on a day-to-day -day basis. The reason why they become jaded 
is because police officers are always dealing with people at their worst. He's de they're dealing with people when they're in crisis situations. So a police officer, their job is to enter into chaos, whereas most of us, I would assume most of you would probably run away from chaos. Am I correct about that? A police officer's job is to enter into it and bring peace. Now, the way a police officer brings peace to a situation where there is chaos is that they have to identify and protect the victims and arrest and take away the culprits. Sounds pretty simple on the surface, far more complicated than you would think. Because in those situations of chaos, it's often hard to determine the victim from the culprit. Because if you're guilty of committing a crime, are you gonna tell the truth about it? No, you're gonna lie in order to protect yourself, right? Furthermore, if you're the victim, you're probably gonna lie also. You're either gonna lie to increase or decrease the likelihood of arrest. So let me give an example of this. When police are called to situations of domestic abuse, it is very common for the person being abused to downplay what has happened because they don't want their spouse to be arrested. Likelihood, or likewise, in situations where there's been a relatively minor altercation, you will see that people will exaggerate what has happened in order to make sure that that person gets arrested. And so the police officer has to deal with the fact that everybody is distorting the truth. And they have to discern what reality is because they have to make some really important decisions that can affect people's lives in huge ways, right? Because if you arrest somebody and they get charged with a crime, that can affect your life for years to come. So they have to make these decisions always based on faulty information. Let me give an example of something that police officers often have to deal with and where it can be a little bit challenging. So often when police officers make an arrest, they transport a person to a jail cell. That's where they go. It's a holding cell while they wait for trial, right? Now on the way to the jail cell, the person in the back of the car will often claim that they need to go to the hospital. And the reason why they claim this is because they believe that either they're going to be able to escape, which they can't, or that they're going to be able to delay being put in a cell. Now, 99.9% .9 of the time, the people who are making this claim have nothing wrong with them at all. They're just saying this so that they can delay going to a cell. But that 0.1% does happen. And one incident that occurred in the Milwaukee Police Department was when a man named Derek Williams was arrested for burglary. He was being transported to a jail cell and he complained to the officers that he could not breathe. And for eight minutes he kept saying, I cannot breathe, I need medical attention. And they kept ignoring his pleas for help until he passed out in the back of the police car. They pulled over, they started doing CPR, and he died in the back of that police cruiser. Now, when the video was released to the public about what happened, people were appalled that these officers had done nothing to help this guy out, that they had essentially ignored his pleas for help. And people were saying, well, these people are heartless. They obviously don't care. They should be tried for murder, and they should be taken off the police force. Now, I don't want to stand up here to excuse what they did at all. But what I'm up here to talk about is to tell you that the environment in which officers work in is an environment where people lie all 
the time. No matter how good of a person they are, no matter how much they want to help their community, they are always dealing with people who are lying to them. And so in this situation, they assumed it was like every other one that they've dealt with, and it wasn't. Now, I'm not trying to say that what they did was okay. They shouldn't have let that man die in the back of their police cruiser. But what it tells you is, is that these officers, they're being influenced by their environment. And their environment is teaching them that people lie all the time. And this is true with you as well. You are not like a police officer. I know many of you are not in law enforcement. But the same pattern holds true for you. The more time you spend in a particular environment, the more that environment is going to cause you in your brain to see the world through a particular lens. Now, there's been studies done on the brain that show that what we experience in our environment, it causes us to develop patterns of recognition. Now, these patterns of recognition, they are for the most part subconscious. They're right beneath the surface, but they inform the way you see the world. Let me give you an example of one study that was done so that you can understand how this really impacts us. So perhaps one of the best studies that explains this is uh, was a study done by Jennings Bryant and Dolph Zillman between 1979 and 1980. So what these guys did was they took 80 college students and they separated them into four different groups. And they told these college students that their job was over six weeks to watch a series of films and they were there to judge their production values. So the first group was known as the high exposure group and they were shown six sexually explicit films over this six week period. They were shown pornography for four hours and 48 minutes. The second group known as the intermediate exposure group, they were shown half erotic, half non erotic movies for a total of two hours and 24 minutes of pornography. The third group, known as the non-exposure group, they were shown all non-erotic films. And the final group, the control group, they were shown no films at all. Now at the end of this study, what they did was they brought all the people back and they gave them a survey. And what they asked them was, they wanted them to tell the people who are running the study what they believed the prevalence was of certain sexual behaviors in America. <coughs> And what they found was that without exception, the people who have been exposed to more pornography believed that certain sexual behaviors were more prevalent in the population than people who had seen no pornography. In other words, with only five hours of exposure to sexually explicit material, it changed the way these people thought about the world around them. They assumed that what they saw in those movies was reflective of what was going on in reality. And if you think this doesn't have an impact on the world, think again. One of the things that they asked in this study was they said, if you were on a jury that had to hand down a sentence for a convicted rapist, what would the sentence be? For the men in group one, that's the high exposure group, they said 50 months would be an adequate sentence. Versus the people in group four who had seen nothing, they said 95 months would be an adequate sentence. Almost double. For the women in group one, it was 77 months. Versus the women in group four, 143 months. Now the reason why the people in group one said it should be a lesser sentence is because subconsciously, 
they were associating the promiscuity of what they saw in those movies with the woman who had been raped. And so they believed that it was appropriate to give the man a lesser sentence because she had brought it on herself. Now we often refer to these patterns of recognition as prejudice. And whether or not you want to admit it, we are all prejudiced. Everyone across the board, everybody in this room, including me, is prejudiced. And the reason why we are prejudiced is because our environment informs our prejudices and because prejudice is linked with safety in our minds. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you're walking down the street and a guy in a dark alley walks out and says to you, he's in tattered clothes, right? He says, would you be willing to join me in this dark alley over here? I'd like to show you something. <laughs> now, I would assume that most of you are going to say no. No, thank you. I'm going to keep on walking. Now, is that decision to say no prejudiced? Absolutely it is. You don't know anything about this guy. You are making an assumption based on his appearance that if you go into that alley, your safety could be in danger. But for all you know, he might want to show you his rare coin collection. You don't know what he wants to show you in that alley. But you're making an assumption based on his appearance. And this is the problem with prejudice. Because prejudice is so connected with safety in our brains, we tend to label whole groups of people who fit a particular profile as being bad. So in the instance I just gave you, right, the man with the tattered clothes, a lot of people in their minds, they will say all homeless people are bad. And therefore, they create this whole group profile, right? Let me give you an example of one of my prejudices. So when I was growing up in Virginia, I went to school with a lot of people who you would say are lower class white people. We derogatorily refer to these people as rednecks. Now, these people were in my class and these are the people who actually caused me a great deal of difficulty when I was in school. They threatened my safety very often and it made it very hard for me to go to school. And so I developed this very intense prejudice. In the same way that we're talking about this guy in the alley, my brain created a profile so that I could stay safe so I wouldn't get beat up when I was at school. Now, fast forward 10 years, and I'm working at Princeton United Methodist Church in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm a youth pastor, and the one mission that these people go on is known as ASP, or Appalachia Service Project. Now, what they do is they go down to the region of the Appalachian Mountains and they serve people who live in this area. As you can probably guess, we were going to serve the very people against whom I had developed my prejudice. Now, I'd like to be able to stand up here and tell you that I just set that prejudice aside and it wasn't a problem and I went down there and I served those people without any issues. But that's not true. That's not what happened. What I saw when I went down there only began to reinforce many of the stereotypes that I had in my mind. I came to find that many of the people who we were going to help could actually afford to have work done on their house, but they chose to spend their money in other ways. For example, I remember one family with whom we worked, they had a Mustang Cobra sitting in their driveway. Now, I don't know if you know what a Mustang Cobra is, but that's a forty dollars to $70,000 vehicle, depending 
on what kind of things you add onto it. It's a racing car, is what it is. And it was only three years old. So even if they bought a used, it would still be a large chunk of change. So even though their house was in total disarray and their kids were malnourished, they had a racing car in their driveway. And I have to tell you, I was angry. I was mad that we were spending our week working on these people's houses when we were essentially making up for their poor financial decisions. But remember what I told you early on. I told you that redemption is where you're going to hear God's voice the most. And when you're engaged in acts of redemption, that's when you're most in sync with God. And that's when you're going to hear God's voice most clearly. A few days into serving in one of these particular weeks, I sat down and I talked with one of the kids who lived in the house. And he told me that in the wintertime, it got so cold in his home that he couldn't feel his feet, even though he would have blankets on over him when he slept at night. And he alluded to the fact that the reason why they could not afford heat was because his father had a drinking problem. And as I sat there and I'm looking at this kid and he's telling me this story, it finally hits me like a ton of bricks. And I realized that what this kid is going through right now is probably exactly what those kids who used to torture me in high school went through growing up. They had no food, they had no heat, and they had nobody to support them. And I realized that like this kid, who was probably crying out at night to God, saying, help me, and waiting for God to say, here I am, that they were in the exact same boat. And so God moved in my heart. It made me realize that redemption in this particular situation was giving this kid the chance that all those kids back in my high school never had. That is what God's voice sounds like. If you've ever wondered, that is it. When you serve the least, the lost, and the oppressed, that is when you hear God's voice most clearly. And the problem is, even when you're engaged in those acts of redemption, your prejudices can shut God's voice out. So I want to end this morning by saying this. I want to encourage you to enter into those places where you are most fearful. I want you to embrace those people who you wouldn't normally embrace. I want you to love them. I want you to care for them. I want you to be God's hands in the world. Because when you serve the least and the lost, and you feel that discomfort, you know that that's when you're going to hear God's voice most clearly. And you know that's when God will say to you, Here I am. Amen. Thanks for listening, and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.